0: Welcome to the First Respiratory Care Podcast of 2009. We start the year by publishing the proceedings of the journal conference, Non-Invasive Ventilation and Acute Care, Controversies and Emerging Concepts. In January, we published the first seven papers from this conference. Sarah, tell us more about these papers.
1: The first paper is by Pearson, from the V Medical Center and University of Washington in Seattle. Its title is History and Epidemiology of non Ventilation in the Acute Care Setting. Although non-invasive ventilation was first used to treat patients with acute respiratory failure in the 1940s, the history of this mainstay of today's respiratory care armamentarium has mainly been written in the last twenty years. There is now a robust evidence base documenting the efficacy of non-invasive ventilation in exacerbations of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, cardiogenic pulmonary edema, and acute respiratory failure in immunocompromised patients evidence in support of non-invasive ventilation in other settings such as hypoxemic acute respiratory failure and the management of patients who decline endotracheal intubation is accumulating rapidly Efficacy as demonstrated in clinical trials does not necessarily translate to clinical effectiveness in practice, however, and important barriers need to be overcome if non-invasive ventilation is to realize for the average patient the potential it has shown in research studies. Although the expansion of its use in everyday patient care has lagged behind the growth of its evidence base, an increasing number of studies document the steadily expanding use of noninvasive ventilation in the acute care setting. This article reviews the history of noninvasive ventilation as applied in acutely ill patients and summarizes the studies of noninvasive ventilation outside the research setting during the last decade. What does it take to have a successful non-invasive ventilation program is by Davies and Gentile from the Duke University Medical Center in Durham, North Carolina. The dramatic increase in the use of noninvasive ventilation over the last decade is multifaceted with regard to the number of patients receiving noninvasive ventilation and in more varied disease conditions supported by noninvasive ventilation. Successful development of a non-invasive ventilation program depends on many variables, but perhaps most important is a multidisciplinary approach that incorporates experience and education. Many aspects of a non-invasive ventilation program must come together to make it successful for both patients and clinicians. Among these are needs assessment, institutional buy-in, use of proper equipment, staff and patient training, protocols and guidelines, and outcomes. Davies and Gentile analyze these issues and identify characteristics that produce a successful non-invasive ventilation program. Next, we have the paper, Where Should Non-Invasive Ventilation Be Delivered? by Hill from Tufts Medical Center in Boston, Massachusetts non-invasive ventilation has assumed an important role in the management of certain types of respiratory failure in acute care hospitals however the optimal location for non-invasive ventilation has been a matter of debate Some have argued that all patients begun on noninvasive ventilation in the acute care setting should go to an intensive care unit, but this is impractical because intensive care unit beds are often unavailable, and it may not be a sensible use of resources. Also, relatively few studies have examined the question of location for noninvasive ventilation. One problem is that various units' capabilities to deliver non-invasive ventilation differ substantially, even within the same hospital. Choosing the appropriate environment for non-invasive ventilation requires consideration of the patient's need for monitoring, the monitoring capabilities of the unit, technical resources, nursing and respiratory therapy personnel resources, and the staff skill and experience. In some hospitals, noninvasive ventilation is begun most often in the emergency department, but is most often managed in an intensive care unit. Step-down units are often good locations for non-invasive ventilation, but many institutions do not have step-down units. With intensive care beds at a premium, many hospitals are forced to manage some non-invasive ventilation patients on general wards, which can be safely done with more stable patients if the ward is suitably monitored and experienced. When deciding where to locate the patient, clinicians must be familiar with the capabilities of the units in their facility and try to match the patient's need for monitoring with the unit's capabilities. Interfaces and Humidification for Non Invasive Mechanical Ventilation is by Nava, Navalesi, and Gregoretti from Pavia, Italy, Novara, Italy, and Torino, Italy. During non-invasive ventilation for acute respiratory failure, the patient's comfort may be less important than the efficacy of the treatment. However, mask fit and care are needed to prevent skin damage and air leaks that can dramatically reduce patient tolerance and the efficacy of non-invasive ventilation. Choice of interface is a major determinant of non-invasive ventilation success or failure. The number and types of interfaces has increased, and new types are in development. The oronasal mask is the most commonly used interface in acute respiratory failure, followed by nasal mask, helmet, and mouthpiece. There is no perfect interface, and interface choice requires careful evaluation of the patient's characteristics, ventilation modes, and type of acute respiratory failure. Every effort should be made to minimize air leaks, maximize patient comfort, and optimize patient ventilator interaction. Technological issues to consider when choosing the interface include dead space, the site and type of exhalation port, and the functioning of the ventilator algorithm with different masks. Heating and humidification may be needed to prevent adverse effects from cool, dry gas. A heated humidifier provides better carbon dioxide clearance and a lower work of breathing than does a heat and moisture exchanger. Next we have, which ventilators and modes can be used to deliver non-invasive ventilation? This paper is by Chatburn from Cleveland Clinic, Lerner College of Medicine, and Case Western University in Cleveland, Ohio. A wide variety of ventilators and modes can be used to deliver non-invasive ventilation. To navigate successfully through the many options, the clinician must first have a clear understanding of the goals of mechanical ventilation, namely safety, comfort, and timely liberation. Examining the specific objectives associated with these goals, we can distinguish priorities for non-invasive ventilation. This paper reviews the methods of achieving those objectives by reviewing the characteristics of ventilation modes, and how those characteristics are measured in performance evaluation studies. This review provides the basis for a simple procedure for selecting the most appropriate non-invasive ventilation technology for the patient and the environment of care. The Physiologic Effects of Non-Invasive Ventilation is by Calais and Diaz from the University of California, San Francisco. The physiologic effects of noninvasive ventilation on work of breathing and breathing pattern, respiratory system mechanics, and hemodynamic function were examined via a literature review of clinical studies done between 1990 and 2008. Forty one relevant studies were found. The majority examined patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease whereas some also included patients with restrictive chest wall disease or acute hypoxic respiratory failure. Noninvasive ventilation reduced work of breathing in direct proportion to the level of inspiratory pressure assist and also by the ability of applied positive end expiratory pressure to counter intrinsic positive end expiratory pressure. In general, an inspiratory pressure support level of 15 centimeters of water and a positive end expiratory pressure of 5 centimeters of water reduced most measures of work of breathing and inspiratory effort toward normal. When set to the same level of inspiratory pressure assist, both pressure support ventilation and proportional assist ventilation effected comparable reductions in work of breathing. At high levels of inspiratory pressure assist, non-invasive ventilation consistently increased dynamic lung compliance and tidal volume, and improved arterial blood gases. The hemodynamic effects of non-invasive ventilation are dependent upon the interplay between the type of mask, the level of inspiratory pressure assist and N-expiratory pressure, and the disease state. In general, patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease have a higher tendency toward decreased cardiac output at high levels of inspiratory pressure assist compared to those with acute lung injury. Finally, we have the paper, Noninvasive Ventilation for Patients Presenting with Acute Respiratory Failure The Randomized Controlled Trials, by Keenan and Meta from St. Paul's Hospital and University of British Columbia, Vancouver, and Mount Sinai Hospital and University of Toronto, Ontario. Noninvasive Ventilation in Patients with Acute Respiratory Failure which was originally described decades ago, underwent a rebirth after reports of successful use in 1989. Over the following 18 years, the literature on noninvasive ventilation has grown substantially. This paper summarizes the randomized controlled trials on noninvasive ventilation for acute respiratory failure. The authors conducted an extensive literature search and selected randomized controlled trials from that search. The results are presented primarily by etiology of respiratory failure, but the authors also include a short section on non-invasive ventilation for acute respiratory failure in immunocompromised patients. The latter studies included patients with various etiologies of respiratory failure, but with the common comorbidity of immunocompromise. Most of the randomized controlled trials have studied noninvasive ventilation for exacerbation of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or cardiogenic pulmonary edema. In general, the randomized controlled trials have been small and did not use endotracheal intubation or non invasive ventilation failure rates as primary outcomes. The authors conclude that non invasive ventilation for acute respiratory failure is supported by strong evidence from patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease but there is only weak support for non-invasive ventilation in patient groups such as immunocompromised patients. For other groups such as patients with asthma, pneumonia, or acute lung injury, high-level evidence is lacking or does not suggest benefit. Clearly, major gaps remain in our evidence base.
0: Over the past 15 years, there has been evolving academic and clinical interest in the use of non-invasive ventilation. In 1997, the proceedings of a consensus conference on non-invasive ventilation were published in Respiratory Care. Much additional information on the use of non-invasive ventilation has become available in the ensuing 10 years, making this journal conference timely. Given that non-invasive ventilation improves important patient outcomes in appropriately selected patients, this is a topic that should prove compelling to many of our readers. As Pearson points out in his paper, non-invasive ventilation has been used for many years, but current interest evolved primarily over the past twenty years. Also, in its current application, noninvasive positive pressure ventilation is used rather than the noninvasive negative pressure ventilation commonly applied during the polio epidemic of the 1950s. As Pearson points out, there is robust evidence supporting the efficacy of noninvasive ventilation and exacerbations of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, cardiogenic pulmonary edema, and acute respiratory failure in immunocompromised patients. Noninvasive ventilation decreases the need for endotracheal intubation and affords a survival benefit. Many authorities consider the use of noninvasive ventilation in these patients to be a standard of care. Despite the strong evidence supporting the use of noninvasive ventilation, its widespread clinical use has lagged in everyday practice. As Davies and Gentile point out, successful development of a non-invasive ventilation program depends on many variables. Institutional buy-in, use of proper equipment, staff training, and use of protocols and guidelines can be important elements when a non-invasive ventilation program is implemented. Initiation of a non-invasive ventilation program must incorporate education so that all involved appreciate the evidence base for this therapy. Typically, there is a growth of the program as clinicians gain experience with non-invasive ventilation and recognize the improvement in patient outcomes with its use. As Davies and Gentile appropriately point out, a multidisciplinary approach is important for success. A matter of much debate is the optimal location for noninvasive ventilation in acute care hospitals. Although it is often argued that patients started on noninvasive ventilation in acute care hospitals should go to an intensive care unit, this is often impractical due to limited resources. As pointed out by Hill, choosing the appropriate environment for noninvasive ventilation requires consideration of the patient's need for monitoring, the monitoring capabilities of the unit, technical resources, nursing and respiratory therapy personnel resources, and the staff skill and experience. When administrative and clinical decisions are made regarding the appropriate location for patients receiving non-invasive ventilation, it is important to consider the capabilities of the units in the facility and match the patient's need for monitoring to the unit's capabilities. The interface is the primary distinction between invasive ventilation and non-invasive ventilation. The interface has been referred to as the weak link in the application of non-invasive ventilation. The paper by Nava et al. is thus very important in considering the clinical use of non-invasive ventilation. Patient comfort often determines the success of non-invasive ventilation and the interface often determines the extent of patient comfort. Facial skin breakdown and air leaks are complications of noninvasive ventilation specifically related to the interface. A variety of interfaces are commercially available and include the oronasal mask, nasal mask, nasal pillows, helmet, and mouthpiece. Mouth leak is often a problem during the application of noninvasive ventilation for acute respiratory failure, and for this reason the oronasal mask is most commonly used. As Nava et al. correctly indicate, there is no perfect interface and interface choice requires careful evaluation of the patient's facial characteristics, ventilation mode, and type of acute respiratory failure. Nava et al. also addressed the important issue of humidification during non-invasive ventilation. In the discussion following this paper, other important issues such as aerosol delivery during non-invasive ventilation are addressed. In addition to the interface, the selection of an appropriate ventilator and ventilator mode are important to the success of non-invasive ventilation. Theoretically, any ventilator used for invasive mechanical ventilation could be used for non-invasive ventilation. In his paper, Chatburn classifies ventilators as non-invasive ventilators, standard home care ventilators, and ventilators designed for use in the intensive care unit. In practice, the distinctions between these categories have become vague because some ventilators, such as current generation home care and intensive care ventilators, have both invasive and non invasive modes. For acute respiratory failure, leak compensation, oxygen delivery, and avoidance of rebreathing are important considerations. Battery power is also important for in hospital transport. As Chatburn points out, Selection of the ventilator mode should be based on comfort and safety. In North America, pressure support is most often used. Proportional assist ventilation is an attractive alternative, but this mode is not available in the United States for non-invasive ventilation. Much has been published describing the physiologic effects of non-invasive ventilation. Calais and Diaz review the physiologic effects of noninvasive ventilation on work of breathing, breathing pattern, respiratory system mechanics, and hemodynamic function. Noninvasive ventilation reduces the work of breathing in proportion to the level of pressure support. In patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, positive end expiratory pressure is also a benefit to counterbalance intrinsic positive end expiratory pressure. Interestingly, Calais and Diaz found that a pressure support level of 15 centimeters of water and a positive end expiratory pressure of 5 centimeters of water reduced most measures of work of breathing and inspiratory effort toward normal. Patients may not tolerate this level of pressure support, and lower levels may be necessary at first. However, this level provides a reasonable target for non-invasive ventilation in patients with acute respiratory failure. Often, the level of inspiratory pressure is a compromise between patient tolerance and optimal physiologic benefit. As pointed out by Keenan and Meta, most of the randomized controlled trials have studied noninvasive ventilation for exacerbation of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or cardiogenic pulmonary edema. The randomized controlled trials strongly support the use of noninvasive ventilation for an exacerbation of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Non-invasive ventilation should also be considered for immunocompromised patients who develop acute respiratory failure. However, there are not enough data to recommend the use of non-invasive ventilation for patients with acute lung injury or acute respiratory distress syndrome, community-acquired pneumonia, asthma, or chest trauma. The topic of non-invasive ventilation for acute respiratory failure has high relevance to the readers of the journal. The papers in the January and February 2009 Issues of Respiratory Care are an essential reference to the evidence and practical application of noninvasive ventilation. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.